Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about Thomas writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Common. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we are looking at 10 common myths about the craft of TV writing. Uh, some of those we've discussed before, some uh, are ones you've sent to us, and others we're expanding here for the first time. So let's bust some myths. <laughs> Hopefully we won't be struck by a copyright uh, infringement. Yeah, fair use. <laughs> yes. And uh, before we get into the myths, as a reminder, we have our 200th episode of this podcast coming up. We'll be streaming it live to you on Saturday, December 5th, with some amazing special guests from the past to talk to you all about television writing and the business. You can mark your calendars right now for December 5th, but also follow the virtual room where it happens, uh, which will be my own Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash TV calling. And also as a second reminder, we want to hear from you, our listeners, for that very special episode. Do you have a favorite moment or episode or even guests from Paper Team that you would like us to bring back during our 200th special? Well, you can fill out our very short quiz as well as get all the information for our free online event at paperteam.co slash 200, that's 200, to get all the details. And now, Nick, do you want to walk us through our very first myth about the craft of TV writing? Right, well, the first myth is that all you need is a good idea. As we've mentioned before on the podcast, uh, that's not exactly true. What you actually need is a good script or a good execution of an idea. One of the most well-known misconceptions about TV writing specifically is that all you need is a good idea uh, in terms of a pilot. But I would also say the same thing holds true in terms of scenes or episode ideas and so forth. Especially in the context of in a writer's room, you will be asked to pivot day after day, whether that's because the showrunner doesn't like your idea or because the network or studio rejected something or because you were getting feedback on your own original TV pilot script. All those things essentially enforce you to be able to be malleable as a craftsperson. And that includes not relying on the single idea to drive your entire career. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, newer to writing who think that all they need is, you know, a couple of good ideas and then someone else will write them for them or they can take them to a producer <laughs> or a studio or whatever and they'll pay them money for the idea and then they'll take care of it and then they'll be a millionaire because they had the idea. And unfortunately, that's just not how it works. You can't really copyright ideas. You can't really buy ideas. You, you purchase the rights to the execution of a particular idea, whether that be in a script or in a book or someone's life story or whatever that happens to be. So, you're going to need to back up that great idea with some good craft and execution or have the money to pay someone to write it for you. That is why ideas are not enforceable, why they're not copyrightable. And that's because it's all about the execution, not the idea, like it is in the world at large that we live in. It's not about what if I'm able to serve uh, hamburgers really fast to people that made McDonald's what it is. It's specifically the techniques that empowered them to make burgers really fast. And I know that's a weird way of saying it, but it's essentially the same thing with your pilot script or your pilot ideas. Because if you read log lines of shows, a lot of those shows are relatively similar, especially every season, you sort of have those recurring themes of, oh, here's another show about zombies or another show about vampires or another show about time travel. You have those recurring motifs. And yet those shows 
are pretty different one from another. And that's because of the creative, that's because of the execution of those concepts. And the same holds true for your pilot. And like I said at the top, the same should also hold true for your characters, your scenes, your dialogue, all those things should always be able to uh, be on your toes when it comes to pivoting and changing ideas. Yeah. When you think about Game of Thrones, HBO didn't give George R. R. Martin all this money because he came to them one day and said, you know what would be cool? A show with some dragons and then there's people like knights with swords and there'll be some magic and some zombies and stuff. How about that? And they're like, great, cool. Let's make your show. He went and he wrote a book and he executed how these stories unfolded. He wrote how the character relationships came to be, uh, how the structure of it all works and the plot and the story. And so that's exactly what you kind of need to do if you want your idea to be successful. You know, I can't the number of scripts I've read where I start reading them because there's a really great logline. I'm like, wow, this could be something really special. I could see this as a TV show. And then the execution just isn't quite there on the page. So you really need both of those things together to succeed. Right. And just to jump back on that Game of Thrones example, when Benioff and Weiss delivered the original film pilot of Game of Thrones, it is notorious for being one of the worst pilots who have been delivered to HBO, or at least getting that reception of something that is not that great. They actually had to reproduce a large amount of that pilot and change a lot of that content to fit their vision, the vision of the network, the studios, the notes they were given, et cetera, et cetera. And we're talking about Game of Thrones, which by now is obviously a huge, huge show. But even at the time, they had to pivot away from certain execution to service another one. And and so that is why, really, when you examine your own ideas, when you examine your own pilot, your episodes, even on staff, you got to be able to pivot and be malleable in all those ways. The second myth we wanted to talk about is that writing is a solitary activity. And so that means that TV writing is also that. That is sort of a, a misnomer, especially in TV writing, where TV writing professionally, when you're on staff, is the definition of a collective creative opportunity. It's an activity that is constructed with a group of people. And then even though you are going to be assigned a script, it's essentially a collective experience. And the same should hold true, as we're going to talk about later in this episode, the same should hold true with your own original pilot. I'm a big proponent of that reading onion. You should uh, go back to, I think it was PT9, or all the way back uh, to our first few episodes, where we discussed ad nauseum about the importance of getting feedback throughout the process, not after the first draft, but even with the outline, even with the logline, and so forth. Really, you're losing on a lot of opportunity by hoarding that piece of script, that piece of content, and not letting it be in the light of day, not letting it be examined and tweaked and uh, acquiring feedback. And that's the same thing in a writer's room. You will be constantly, I mean, I don't know if constantly, but you will definitely be critiqued either by the showrunner, the executives, the your peers. And that's an important trait to have. And that is why TV writing is not a solitary activity. Right. As far as uh, creative pursuits go, television writing is one of the most collaborative and non-solo activities that you could possibly imagine. If you think of a scale from writing a tweet where it's literally just you putting your thoughts out and hitting send with no filter, that's maybe the most solo activity. Then you've got writing a novel where, again, it's all just the one vision of this writer putting it out on the page and maybe they have an editor giving them some notes but again no one else is coming in and changing that or collaborating on that with them it's one writer to writing for a feature film where again you might have 
you know, some direction towards that, but you go away and you write all that film yourself and you bring it back and then it gets made. And then you've got TV where you really are from the get go. Uh, if you're in a writer's room, everything is a collaboration. That's why it can be so hard to attribute a particular idea or joke or even an episode that someone gets a writing credit on is still filled with all those ideas from other people and all that creative input. And it's really hard to just say that one person has ownership over those things. And I guess maybe the next level of most collaborative would be a, an improv show. But uh, you know, <laughs> TV is a lot closer to improv than it is to writing a novel squirreled away in a room somewhere. Exactly. It's not a coincidence that a lot of improv comedians are huge uh, TV writers. And uh, especially if you look at comedy rooms or the way even drama rooms function, the whole yes and mantra is very present in those rooms. And just to go back to where that myth, I think, stems from, in part, I believe, is because a lot of writers see themselves as introverts. They don't like to socialize. They feel they're a bit socially awkward. Maybe that's why initially they were driven to the craft of writing. It was sort of uh, to explore their own thoughts, their own uh, narratives, and so forth in a sort of a personal manner. And while all that may still be true, in TV, that is just not how the sausage is made, so to speak. And you will need to be constantly vulnerable and put yourself out there, not just on the business side, we haven't even talked about the business side, but even on a pure craft level, you need to let yourself be vulnerable, to let yourself be critiqued, analyzed, acquiring that feedback that I speak of, especially in a writer's room where because of that collaborative environment, and hopefully it is that yes and uh, improv element that uh, we just mentioned, but nonetheless, you will be intrinsically vulnerable because of the format of it. Unless you're the showrunner, uh, which you know, 99% of the time, you will not be the showrunner. You will have to answer to someone else. And that, that does mean uh, essentially writing communally and letting your writing be presented and be able to be critiqued. Yeah. At every stage of the process, what you've written is going to have feedback on it and change according to the input from other writers, from uh, the production company, from the studio, from the network, uh, all of that sort of thing. So it's really, really hard to be precious about the, the sanctity of the exact words you put on the page. And it really does have to become more about what's best for the story rather than the exact way that you decided you wanted to write it. All right, next on our list of common myth about the craft of TV writing. And this is something we go back to frequently. So it bears repeating once again that number three, you should only write what you know. Yeah, I think the problem with this one is that it is so frequently misinterpreted to mean something very literal, like you should only ever write the experiences that you've had in, in your own life or the things that you know about firsthand. And while there is some truth to that, that the more you can pull from your personal experience and the things that you know well, the more truth there's going to be in your story. If that was actually true, then we would never have sci-fi. We would never have fantasy. We would never have a horror supernatural with monsters because none of those things are real and therefore nobody knows them. So really what it is about is finding something within yourself uh, that you can relate to, something within you that you can put into that story in another way and transform so that you are speaking from a truth, but it doesn't have to be a literal truth of I was once a doctor and that's why I'm writing this doctor show. Yeah, right where you know isn't literally right where you know. And I think the confusion there stems uh, in the same way that for the last myth, it was probably because a lot of writers are introverted. Here, I feel like a lot of it is in part due to shows hiring people based on their experiences. Maybe if you were a lawyer, you'll have an easier road getting staffed on a law show, for example, than someone who's not. But that said, stories are meant to be both very universal, but also very particular and very unique. And the reason why compelling narratives, 
resonate with audiences and you listening to this is because someone wrote what they knew to be true emotionally, not literally, but emotionally. They knew the pain of a heartbreak or the joy of getting a promotion or getting married or whatever version of that is for you. And that is why narratives are so cathartic. And that is why you should write what you know. Write what you know in this context does mean write what you know emotionally, write pain and suffering or the joy and happiness that you are living with and translate that into your characters, into the pain or joy that they're living through, into the stories that you want to tell in your script and in terms of the dialogue, all those different elements. You should shade it with the emotions that you're feeling, all your baggage, translate it through the page. Yeah, all of that is absolutely true. I will give one kind of caveat to this, which is how it pertains to certain lived experiences of people, whether that be race or sexuality or culture, that sort of thing. I do think it is important for people who haven't had that lived experience in their life to not try to write that. You know, it can be kind of exploitative. It can be seen as appropriative of other people's culture and other people's experiences. And that's how we get these things like whitewashing and uh, bad portrayal of LGBT. LGBTQ characters and everything because you have, say, an old straight white man writing what he imagines this is like, but it has no real actual authenticity and truth to it because, again, he has never actually lived that experience and therefore is not writing what he knows. Exactly, yeah. And that's why, I mean, I feel like TV writing uh, has done... uh properly, so to speak, is one of the most powerful techniques of uh, storytelling. And that's because you have a group of people with very diverse experiences and that can speak one person, two people, however many people can speak to those different versions of those experiences. It's not, you know, we're all individual people. And so at the end of the day, the reason, again, why stories are so cathartic is because of empathy. The reason why writers, uh, good writers are good writers or great writers is because they can show that level of empathy and translate that empathy through the characters. This is not uh, one of the myths that we're going to be speaking about here, but it's kind of like the uh, similar thing with the idea that all your characters need to be likable. You know, even your villains need to be likable. And that's a common misnomer because what really matters is that the audience can relate and understand emotionally why people are acting that way. That's why a character like Heisenberg isn't likable and yet is one of the most compelling characters on television. And that's because as an audience member, we could empathize with some of the elements. Or conversely, maybe we cannot, and then we maybe side more with someone like Skylar. And so that's why empathy is such a, a powerful tool in your arsenal. And that's why writing what you know is essentially showing empathy through your characters. And on that note, let's look at common myth number four in the craft of TV writing. And that is that all the pilot needs to do is introduce the characters and the world. Yeah, well, this is a myth that evidently a lot of people believe is true, because that's what I think I read in pilots 80% of the time, is uh, people just assume that it's like the first act of a feature film, where you're setting up the characters, you're setting up the world, you're setting up the situation, and like, well, here it is, it's, this is the pilot, this is what the show is, but they conveniently have forgotten to uh, include some kind of real story <laughs> or narrative to it that works on an episodic level, or you know, maybe they only give us that final beat of the story that's like, oh, what's going to happen next at the very end of the pilot, and they've just spent the entire time setting things up instead, and we talked about that in our uh, scope episode recently as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, uh, for the record, that was PT-184. And that is truly one of the most common issues that I also have found reading at People's Pilots. And 
essentially they get lost in the very concept of what a pilot is supposed to do. Because as we've said ad nauseum, and this is something I strongly believe in, uh, a pilot is supposed to both be a compelling hour of television as well as being that first hour of television. You cannot just give us the first chapter of the story without that chapter being intrinsically compelling as a story. And that doesn't just mean introducing characters. That doesn't just mean giving us a lot of world building because that's essentially just exposition, if we're being real here. It's really about showing in 30 or 60 pages why I want to be in that world, why I want to live with those characters, and why the story is compelling. Story and plot are the things that drive characters. Or conversely, if you believe that characters drive plot and story, you can also go that way. But either way, those two things, those elements go hand in hand. And you cannot just dismiss it as, all right, let me just set up this really complex thing with characters or world or even story and let it be its own thing without realizing that within those 60 or 30 pages, I need to be entertained. The audience needs to be entertained to really give the show a chance. Yeah, exactly. There's a reason that you have those 30 to 60 pages in which to write things. If you could basically tell exactly the same thing that you've put into a pilot from reading a Bible instead, then what's the point of the pilot? You know, so all of that is to say that you need to go further than just establishing here's the setting, here are the different characters. We really need to get that story going. It's the difference between, you know, me going into a bicycle store and wanting to buy a bicycle that I can ride and see how it works, and then handing me a, a blueprint or a picture of a bicycle and going, well, here's what it would look like. And what it would do. Maybe it will eventually when someone builds it. You know, We want you to build the bike. We want you to give us the bike and we want to be able to take it for a ride. And that does also include, uh, for the record, setting up the engine or formula of the show, especially if it is something like a procedural we need to understand the mechanics of that show. Going back to the famous example of Lost. You can watch the pilot of Lost and you understand the rules of the game and the fact that every episode is going to be centered around a particular character. And narratively speaking, we're going to be using flashback in parallel to the present timeline of what is happening on the island. And the same thing holds true for something like Breaking Bad. Again, going back to that example. In the pilot, we understand the formula of the show, which is Walter White gets into trouble and then tries to get out of it. And it's sort of the consequences of that that escalate further and further. Game of Thrones, same thing. Within the pilot, you understand, hopefully you understand, or at least part of it, the power dynamics at play and setting up the fact that Ned Stark is going to be the hen of the king. You set up all those characters within an hour. And that is the power of great storytelling, but also a great pilot, is that it's able to set those things while also entertaining you within that one hour or 30 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both of those things are equally important, you know, telling that contained story, like you just said, and then also setting us up. It shouldn't just feel like a short film that we just watched and everything's done or, or the, at the end of a feature film where it's like, well, it's all resolved. Here you go. That was the story. We really need to have those threads that are leading and, and making us intrigued to watch the rest of it. It's, it's an entire television series and we want to know why we have to watch the next episode and the next episode and the next and that leads us to the fifth myth on this list about uh, TV writing craft. And that is that I need to have figured out the whole series before writing out the first page of my pilot. 
I think a lot of writers can get bogged down in the research stage and the brainstorming and ideation stage where they're coming up with a million different ideas of here's all the different episodes we could have and here's the different arcs that are going to happen down the line. And all of that is great. And it's really good to have that in your head to help inform stuff. But a lot of that is not going to be coming out on the page in the pilot and that kind of thing. So what's more important is that you understand the entirety of the pilot before you sit down and uh, write that first page. You know, I, I never recommend anyone to just kind of sit down and start writing and see where it takes you because naturally you're going to have some issues with your structure, uh, some issues with your pacing, all of that kind of thing. But then again, you don't need to go so far as to break your entire series or have every single episode of the first season planned out before you ever sit down and write because then you're never going to get it done. I'll definitely co-sign everything you just said. Uh, I'm a firm believer in outlines and especially in TV writing, you need to know where you're going. At the very, very, very least, you need to know the temples, the act breaks, the act outs, the cliffhanger, the teaser, all those big moments and set pieces within the pilot. And then when you outline, you can fill in kind of like a puzzle, the center of it, the middle of it, and flesh out that story. But despite knowing where you're headed in terms of your pilot, maybe just general broad strokes of where you would like the general idea of the characters and show to go in the first season and so forth, you do not need to have everything fleshed out. And I feel like a lot of it also comes down to people wanting to write beyond the first episode. I feel like this is one of the other most common questions we get on this podcast, and that is, do I need to write a pilot or can I also write episodes two, three, four, five, six when pitching or selling the show? And as we've said ad nauseum, no, just write the pilot. That's all that matters. And that goes back to the previous myth we just mentioned. It needs to be a compelling hour of TV. And that also means you need to really focus on why that hour of TV is is compelling. It needs to set up the rest of the show, sure, but you do not need to know every single detail of it to either sell the show or even to make that episode compelling. I mean, case in point, Lost, right? They did not know the end of the show or the intricacies of the six plus seasons of that show when they wrote that first episode. And the same thing can hold true even for Game of Thrones. I, I keep going back to those huge set piece examples because that's usually the common examples people give as counter examples when in fact, that's just an example that further proves the point that you do not need to know the intricacies of the entire show before you write the first page. Focus on your characters, focus on your world, focus on your story, focus on that pilot first. I just want to reiterate that point about uh, not writing episode twos and threes, unless you're writing like a web series that you're planning on shooting yourself or a series of sketches or something like that. You should really only ever write that pilot. Otherwise, it's just going to be work that's going to waste and that you could have spent writing a different pilot so that you have multiple different samples. And I think one thing that it will do too is make you make sure that that pilot is really focused and contains everything that it needs to contain, like we talked about uh, in the last example, rather than kind of thinking, well, I've got to save some of that for episode two because people people are going to read that and find that interesting as well. No, put it all in your pilot. We've said that a million times before, and it's still true. Exactly. As the Michael Jackson documentary once said, this is it. You need to put everything you have in that pilot. No sales letter, no Bible, no pitch document. I'm sure in the back half, once you're deeper into the woods, maybe you can craft those. But in terms of for yourself, creating the best pilot possible, put your energy into that first and foremost. Make that your sales letter. Make that the real Bible, quote unquote, and not in a expositionary kind of way, but really in a compelling way that really shows and displays the world and characters and story in the best way possible. 
All right, and myth number six is that you need to constrain your TV script to a couple of sets or locations or write to a specific budget. So there's a clear distinction here to be made between if you are writing an original piece of material like an original pilot script as opposed to being on staff as a staff writer. And if we're talking about writing an original pilot script or a spec script, you should not be constrained by sets of locations. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean every single scene is to be in a completely new location that we've never established before and doesn't make sense. However, if it makes sense logistically within your pilot that people travel across an island or across the world or something spectacular like that, do not let yourself be constrained by an imaginary budget because your show, your pilot, is meant to be sort of a compelling sample, as we've said in this very episode. It's it's not meant to be a producible episode of TV, at least not yet. So really focus your energy on that. Now, conversely, if you are on staff, I mean, obviously at the, by that point, you should be aware of the budget limits and you should talk to either your line producer or your APs or your showrunner to really get a better sense of the sets you're working with, the locations. And I feel a lot of that will come down to organically within the room. When you're breaking story, it'll be pretty clear within uh, you know the episode break what you can do and what you cannot. Yeah, I think this is maybe more of a thing in the feature world where it's much more likely that you're going to be able to take that script and take it to a producer who could, you know, make it for under a million dollars or whatever and get it made that way and take it to the festivals and that kind of thing. The same is not true of TV. TV pilots require such a huge investment of money, of, you know, multiple partners like studios and networks and uh, all that sort of thing coming together that uh, it really doesn't matter how much it costs. And if it does, and they love the story so much, then they will come back to you and say, Hey, look, we love it. We want to make it, but can we take this out and change this so that it's uh, affordable for us to produce? So really just go wild, put whatever you need to make it the best story possible. It can be in the best sample because chances are not to be bleak, but 99.99% of the time the pilot you're writing right now is not going to end up becoming its own TV show that you sell. So you may as well just make it the best piece of writing that it can be. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, practically speaking, the piece that you're writing, whether that's obviously a spec script or a pilot, an original pilot, nine times out of 10, in fact, I would argue 95 times out of 100 is going to be used primarily as a writing sample, not as a producible episode, not as a show you're going to be selling et cetera, et cetera. It's just a writing sample. And so by that standard, you should be writing a compelling writing sample. You should not be writing something that is uh, going to make a line producer happy. That's not the metric that you should be measuring this sample against. And the same thing holds true for pretty much any sample up until the point that you're confronted with a barrier of production. As soon as you enter the sort of like the writing room staff and uh, you need to be writing an episode for TV genuinely, at that point, you should definitely consider the budget and be aware of those restrictions. But if you're just writing essentially for yourself, if you're just writing a pilot to demonstrate that you're an amazing TV writer that should be staffed or even a TV writer that should be heard in terms of uh, pitching shows around town, then you should be focusing on writing a compelling sample. And to go back to Nick's point about the feature of it all, it is completely true that uh, TV is not like features in the sense of spec sales don't really exist in TV. You may have an odd example here and there, uh, most famously Mickey Fisher with Extent and uh, you know when he won the, the Tracking B contest and all those very niche examples that you could probably only count on one hand. But outside of those very specific examples, as an ASYNC TV writer, you will not have the opportunity to have that pilot script that you wrote be bought and produced as is. That just doesn't exist, practically speaking. Yeah, so don't 
stop and limit yourself from writing crowd scenes or writing too many scenes at night or when it's raining or having animals or whatever it happens to be. Like just make the best choices for your story. I will say with another small caveat that one exception to this might be if you are writing for a multicam sitcom, you should keep in mind what your sets are going to be because you're probably going to have two to three main standing sets and then maybe one swing set that you can alternate out each week when they need to go somewhere. So you want to make sure that you're making it clear that you have, this is the home and then this is the workplace and all that kind of stuff. Because if you have uh, a multicam taking place over 60 different locations out in the world, it's no longer a multicam. It's a, a very expensive hybrid. So that's probably the only exception I would say to writing for TV is making sure you understand the format and how those kind of shows work. So you're not endorsing my We Bought a Zoo multicam reboot? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone would. All right, let's move on to our seventh common myth in uh, the Craft TV writing. And that is that there are no rules to TV writing or there are strict rules that everyone must follow. And uh, I'll just say this on the onset, uh, just because something is correctly formatted and we'll get to sort of the formatting of it, but just because something is properly formatted with the right number of acts and the right number of act breaks and so forth, doesn't mean it is good writing. It just means it's well-proportioned. Uh, and so those two things should not be confused. Yeah. You're going to hear either side of this argument on Twitter, on Reddit, in screenwriting books uh, until the end of time. And everyone thinks that they are right and that they have the only answer to this of, oh, there's no rules at all. Write whatever you want. And you don't have to stick to conventions or formatting or whatever. Just let your brilliance out. And then there are other people who are like, no, no, no. You must never, ever write a camera direction or we see or a transition or anything like that at all. And obviously, obviously, the truth is somewhere in the middle. It's really good to have a strong understanding of screenwriting conventions, of formatting, of act breaks, of story structure. You don't have to write every script like the exact beats of Save the Cat or The Hero's Journey. You can, of course, experiment and play and do things that suit your voice and be different. At the same time, if you throw everything out and <laughs> throw the baby out with the bathwater and you're not uh, using act breaks or you're writing into the margins of your script or uh, whatever it happens to be, if you get too crazy with it, some people might just not even bother taking a look at it because it doesn't look anything like a screenplay anymore, or it doesn't follow the basic ideas of story or structure. And to that point about the nuances of editorializing on your page, I would definitely recommend PT156, where we specifically tackle that topic of breaking the rules in your TV pros and unconventional ways of breaking those rules within a TV writing script. Now, I will also say, just to be clear, TV writing, unlike something like a feature film or even novels, TV has a form. They have very specific rules. I know we make a lot of fun about, you know, story by McKee and all those things. And this whole idea of, oh, okay, a feature film needs to be three acts or four acts and blah, blah, blah. But TV needs to be three acts or four acts or five acts or whatever it is, depending on the format, the network, and the mandate that you're asked. And that's because of ads. That's because of the format of the medium. And obviously with OTTs like Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu, and all those places, the format has been evolving and is still morphing. However, in terms of the actual shows that you're going to be writing as a sample, as a nascent TV writer, or even as a staff TV writer, most times those shows need to fit a particular format. And so just to say, to be clear on the record, that just because we're saying rules are adaptable in terms of the craft itself, the 
the content of the script, that's definitely malleable. But in terms of the format of it, that's not something that can be negotiated beyond, you know, the medium that you are living in. Next up on our top 10 is number eight, uh, a common myth about TV writing. And that is that someone has done my show. So I need to stop writing this pilot or throw it in the trash. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows this feeling. It's, it's one of the worst feelings in the world when you've spent so much time coming up with a really great idea or writing your entire pilot. And you're like, this is cool. I haven't seen this on TV before. This is going to be great. And then you open up deadline the next morning. And it's like so-and-so big writer just sold this thing to Fox or, you know, and usually by the time you see that article, that means it's already well into production and they've staffed up the room and everything. And so it's going to be out on TV before your project ever has a chance. So as much as that sucks and as much as it makes you feel like you want to give up, and not bother with it, it doesn't mean that what you've just written is useless. Because like we've said before, with great ideas versus execution, everyone has a different execution of even the exact same idea. So sure, your thing might be about a zombie babysitter, and uh, so is theirs. But uh, you know, you're going to have both written them in very different ways, you might be writing them for slightly different audiences, one might be more of a, a gritty HBO version, and one might be more of kind of a silly like CW version. There's any number of points of differentiation, that could mean that your pilot is not just going to be endlessly compared to this exact same thing and could still work for you as a great writing example. Maybe it could even get you staffed on that show that just sold. Exactly. Never give up, never surrender up to a certain point. I will say that if you have written the pilot, if the sample is done or you are at least in the outline stage going to draft, do not throw that pilot away. Finish it finish that pilot. Because as Nick said, a lot of it comes down to execution. Maybe you can even change or tweak the tone if it's different. And even if the tone is relatively similar, you don't know the future. Maybe that show that is doing exactly the thing you're doing is going to get canceled. And within two years, nobody's going to remember what it is. And then you can still bring that back and tweak uh, a little piece here and there to really make it even more distinctive. And that by that point, you will have sort of your own voice and you know, it will not be quite the same pilot as it was then. But conversely, if you are in the very, very early stages, and I'm really talking about early stages as in like, I'm coming up with the log line, I have a couple of ideas I'm throwing here and there, and then you wake up one morning and the front page of Deadline is quite literally the story that you want to tell, then maybe I would reconsider. However, I said maybe, not definitely, because once again, it's not about the idea, it's about the execution. So even if, I will consent, even if if that Deadline article talks about Spielberg and Amblin doing a show about uh, witch aliens or something, and it's going to be for ABC, okay, they're going to do that. But what if your witch alien is, like Nick mentioned, a sort of a gritty AMC-type drama about, I don't know, the underworld of witch aliens? I am just, <laughs> I have no idea what witch aliens are, but to be <laughs> frank, but uh, who knows? That could be a compelling AMC drama. But nonetheless, whatever the case may be, you have the opportunity to put your own stamp on that idea idea your own execution. So however, uh, you know, deep into the woods you are, I would really reconsider and really weigh the pros and cons of, am I wasting my time creating this new pilot or is it just a few tweaks here and there? Yeah. And as uh, we've said before, on the flip side of all this, what you also want to avoid doing is chasing these trends. If you're seeing that a lot of zombie shows or witch alien shows or <laughs> whatever are being made <laughs> out in the industry right now, don't think to yourself, well, that means that that's all people want. Everybody wants their own version of uh, the witch aliens on CW. So <laughs> I need to go out and write my own version of that. And then I'll be super rich and successful as well. And that's, again, just a misunderstanding of how the industry works and the timelines that lead up 
up to things like that happening by the time you're ready with your pilot and you're taking it out, then everyone's going to want the next thing, which is the, the, the zombie babysitters. Well, in the same way that we talked about writing what you know, you should be writing what you want to see genuinely. That is why you are in the position you're in. That is what makes you different from all other people. And that is because you know the kind of content that you would like to see, the kind of execution that only you can deliver. So write that content that makes you distinctive and not just a copycat. And on that note, let's look at our penultimate TV writing myth to be busted right here. And that is that, well, so I just finished the first draft of my pilot. So now it's finally ready to go out to the industry at large. Yeah, it can certainly feel like it is. And you can feel that really big sense of accomplishment of, yeah, it's finally done. And I, I put the finishing touches on it and I feel really good about it. And it's, it's going to be great. And I should just uh, query it out to all the managers right now and, and see if they'll, they'll rep me based off of this. Or I should send it to that one producer contact I have who my friend introduced me to over coffee. And this is my big shot. My script's ready. Let's go. <laughs> and obviously we would caution you not to do that. And that's because, you know, no matter how good you feel about it right now, it's still a first draft. And you're really going to need to undergo several rewrites, several polishes, rounds of feedback from people. You probably should have been getting feedback from people even before you finished this draft, the other various stages that the script has been at. We always advise to put it away for a couple of days, a week, whatever it takes, come back to it with fresh eyes, get other people's opinions on it, and then keep making it better till uh, eventually, I don't know, the third or fourth or fifth draft where maybe it is ready for people to see. Yeah, I mean, time is on your side. As Nick just mentioned, that is your moment to put that script away, work on something else, maybe go on a trip, do something else to change your mind from sort of uh, the details of that script. And then when you come back to it, you'll be able to see with fresh eyes all the things you need to tweak, all the things that are going to appear quite jarringly to you when you go uh, through page one through 60. And honestly, I mean, I would also say that regardless of the stage of your script, you should always be specific and targeted in terms of what you want to do with that pilot, what you want to do with that script. Even though your script may be quote unquote ready to go out to the industry, which I don't necessarily believe is, you know, something that's uh, genuine. But even if we buy that, you should always be specific about who you want to go after. Don't just machine gun uh, a bunch of people with your script by just sending it wide and uh, BCCing every agent at CA or something like that. You've got to be very specific. And to be quite honest, that should only even happen once people have said, All right, this is amazing. Let me send this to X or let me do this for you. At that point, you can sort of buy that, okay, my script is maybe ready by that point to be read by other people. But before you get to that point, really tweak your first draft, even your second and third drafts, and they need to be pitch perfect for them to be valuable to you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time you're only going to get one shot or one favor from a producer's assistant or an agent's assistant or a manager who you you know through someone's friend or whatever it happens to be. So you really don't want to to waste that opportunity because uh, if they read one bad script from you because it was a first draft or maybe it's even, you know, a fine script or just an okay script, you know, it was good but not great. And then they're like, I'm sorry, I can't do anything with this or we can't rep you at the moment then they're not going to want to sit around and wait and read the, certainly not going to read the second draft or the third draft of that same <laughs> script. And they're probably not going to want to read the next script that you write because they already gave you that time out of their day and did you that favor. So you want to make sure you're not blowing those opportunities by putting something out before it's ready. Don't waste that shot, as uh, Hamilton would say. And uh, now let's look at the final myth of this episode. 
All right, number 10, there's this myth that you maybe need to master all of the different skills in writing to be a valuable TV writer on staff, or that you need a perfect script, or conversely, maybe that you only need to just focus on one particular aspect of TV writing in order to succeed. Yeah, I mean, it is quite daunting to just list the number of skills or elements that go into a good and great script. I mean, this is what, uh, PT-195, we spent 195 episodes going down most of those things, whether that's character, theme, structure, dialogue, prose, action, whatever it is. And the reality is that, you know, you should be as holistic of a writer as possible, but do not get bogged down into perfection because perfect is the enemy of good and good is the enemy of done, right? So you got to be as good as you can be today and finish those scripts, finish those episodes and focus on what you can improve based on feedback, based on where you believe your faults are, but not based on necessarily, I got to catch them all, a Pokemon mentality of I got to acquire all the skills to be the one valuable staff writer. And conversely, that doesn't also mean you got to go all in on this one thing. I'm going to be the dialogue person. And that's the only thing you can be. That may be true in terms of selling yourself, in terms of TV staffing and, and really knowing your brand in that capacity. But in terms of the craft itself, you should be Again, as holistic as possible, you should not go all in on just writing dialogue or just writing prose or great action set pieces. You should be writing a compelling script and understanding the nuances, understanding the balance of all those elements. Yeah, everyone naturally has their own strengths and weaknesses as a writer. So, you know, it's impossible to expect yourself to be a master of absolutely everything. You know, you might have particular strengths with uh, jokes and dialogue, and that's awesome. And you might be maybe, let's say, a little bit less good on story structure. And that's fine, because in a writer's room, everyone is there to balance each other out. And especially at the lower levels as a staff writer, the entire room is not relying on you to make sure the structure of the show is going to succeed. And the show is not going to fail and get poor ratings because the staff writer didn't know exactly where the second act break should fall. So lean into your strengths and obviously do what you can to work on your weaknesses and improve yourself as a writer, but don't feel like you need to be uh, the ultimate perfect writer or instead that you need to be the best in the entire world at jokes that you need to one-up everyone and you need to like keep riffing on the showrunner's joke because it could be better. I think both of those extremes are not going to help you actually be the best writer you can be. Absolutely. And a lot of it does come down to ego. It's like, I need to be the very best that ever was, or I need to be, you know, the most amazing TV artist and so forth. You'll be surrounded by people, hopefully that are better than you. And that should be how you should live your life, right? You should be surrounded by people who are funnier than you, who are more intelligent than you, so that you can drive yourself forward and up as opposed to uh, the opposite. And so the same holds true for yourself. You should hold yourself accountable. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, you should be uh, lazy and not do anything, but that also also doesn't mean you should give uh, yourself a hard time if you miss a joke or the room doesn't laugh when you say something funny or something like that. And conversely, like you said, that doesn't mean you should save the day necessarily. But if you are able to, if you have an idea to pitch that second act breaks, uh, believing and knowing that structure is your skill set and you feel like the scene with Louise should really go uh, before uh, the scene with Michelle, then sure, you should pitch that and give your reasons for that. But that also 
also doesn't mean that you should sell yourself short. You should know all those things. And a lot of it comes back to what we said before, feedback, learn from other people, let them educate you, but also let them criticize you. Let them tell you, okay, maybe your characters are not the best kind of characters, but your dialogue is amazing. So next pilot, you know, okay, I know I'm good at dialogue, so I'm going to focus on character for this draft or this version. Yeah. As writers, we're always learning. You know, we have to ask ourselves, is our children learning? Uh, <laughs> as George Bush once said. But uh, especially when you're there on a writing staff, your goal is to learn. It's to watch and observe. And like you said, Alex, learn from these people who are veterans of the industry and are great at their craft and to hone all of that in. So we all run up against that imposter syndrome of, am I good enough? Should I really be here? How did I get this job? Will I ever work again? And it's important not to beat yourself up about that and just trust in the fact that something that you did or wrote or said was good enough to get you here and to just, uh, like you said, bury your ego and keep getting better day by day. You'll make through it. We believe in you here at Paper Team. All right. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patron podcast, our cheat sheets, our exclusive Paper Team mentorship updates. And all of this is available to you at paperteam.co slash Patreon. And uh, we'll keep producing a great show like this for you every week. Uh, So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at ppteen.co slash 195. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes uh, or questions or anything like that, you can always send them to ask at ppteam.co. That's C-O. And what are we doing next week? Well, next week, we are going to dive into how to give notes. Uh, We've covered before how to receive notes and who you should be looking to for your notes in the Reading Onion. But now we're going to talk about, as a writer, how you can be constructive in giving creative notes to other people. I really like the way you delivered that. Maybe next time you can be a little bit more concise. Uh, Sure. Thank you, Alex. Uh, I appreciate your (laughs) constructive criticism on my thing about constructive criticism. (laughs) Tune in next week. All right. Well, I'll see you next week. Catch you then.